Father, thank you for this time to gather together and to study your word. I thank you for the depth and the riches and the power of your word. I pray that you would guide me and guard me in particular from uh, misstep, from error, or sin in any way. And all of us, uh, Lord, as we speak together and as we encourage one another through the ministry of the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have copies of your Bible, you can turn to Romans 9 or you can look at the handout that I put on the uh, stand as you came in. And we're going to continue in this uh, remarkable chapter, Romans 9, one of the deep and, and the great chapters in the Bible. Um, so I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's read as we've been doing um, up through verse 29. So if somebody's willing to read um, up through verse uh, 18, 1 to 18, and then somebody else 19 to um the end of 29. Romans 9, 1 through 18. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are uh, descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who regard it as Abraham's offspring. For this was how Thomas was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one. And the same father had one and the same father, Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall I say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Thank you. And somebody 19 to 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? For what is molded, so to his molder? Why has he made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, 
even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her, her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as a span of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left his offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Good, I'll, I'll finish the chapter. Um, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. All right, so that's Romans 9. Uh, we are addressing, Paul is addressing the topic. Why is it the Jews, uh, the physical descendants of Abraham, are overwhelmingly rejecting Christ as their Messiah? Uh, how, how can we understand that, especially given the amazing things that was said about God's sovereignty and God's power and God's love concerning our salvation at the end of Romans 8. Um, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28, for those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those He predestined, He also called, those He called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Absolute, complete statements of security for um, people that God foreknew, predestined, that they will in the end be glorified. And then he goes on to say, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing in heaven or earth or under the earth, nothing in the present or the future, nothing at all could ever separate us from the love of God. It's an absolute, complete uh, sense of certainty of the power of God in our salvation. So then Paul, as he is like to do, um, but also because it's very important in redemptive history, brings up challenges to his doctrine. If this is so, if God is so awesome and powerful and sovereign in salvation, what about the Jews? That's a, a counter-argument. Um, and so he's going to answer that for three chapters. Now we've begun to see that answer uh, here. Uh, he talks about, uh, first of all, his own emotional state, his emotions about the lostness of the Jews. It's a very sad topic. Uh, it causes him uh, sorrow and unceasing anguish, similar to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. The great sorrow to him that the Jews are on their way to hell, that they are on that road that leads to destruction that Jesus described. Um, it's a, a terrifying thing. As he said uh, to the scribes and Pharisees, um, you know, uh, he said, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. He said, how will you escape being condemned to hell? You know, it's a very terrifying thing that Jesus, the judge of all the earth, would say to human beings. And so there's a tremendous sorrow. He begins with that. And then um, talks about their advantages, tremendous advantages um, to being a Jew. He already covered that in chapter 3, but he goes back again at some of those advantages. Their advantages. But it's pretty clear, given his sorrow, given his weeping, 
his grief, those advantages don't save them. Frankly, you learn to whom much is given, much is required. So it's actually worse for them that they have these advantages and don't believe. It's actually worse. It would be better for them not to know uh, than to know and to reject, and they are rejecting, and that's what he's dealing with. Then he deals with his first significant uh, concern, and that is this doesn't in any way impugn the sovereign power of God or the effectiveness of his word. You shouldn't think that there's some failing on God's part here. So verse 6, it's not as though God's word had failed. Why is that so important? Because it is by the word of God that we are saved. He's going to make that very plain in, in 1017. Faith comes from hearing the word. So the word is effective, the word is powerful. As we saw in Isaiah, God's word doesn't return empty, but achieves the purpose for which he sent it. He's, he never fails. God never fails. So it's not that. That's not what's going on here. Well, what is it then? Why is it then? And so his initial answer after saying, look, it's not that, all right, well, then what is it? What is the reason? And the reason has to do with God's sovereign election. It has to do with his choice. That's what he's getting with. It's not the only part of his answer. He's going to go on for three chapters. But it is the first thing that he brings up. It's not as though God's word has failed. Why do you say that? Well, because not all Israel, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There's a group within a group, all right? So there uh, is Israel biologically or genetically, they are uh, genealogically, we could say, physically descended from Abraham. And then there's an Israel within the Israel, so he's defining Israel two different ways. Um, and so basically what he means is God's you know, beloved, chosen, saved people. That's the second use of the word Israel. The first is the descendants. And so there is this like a, a, a circle representing the Jews, and a smaller circle within it representing the true Jews. Uh, and, I, and I use that language because Paul uses it. Man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely out and physical. Man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So that is the true circumcision. That's the true, that's true Judaism. And that is to uh, not only hear the law, but follow it and to believe in it uh, but ultimately to trust in Christ. That's what he's saying. That's his first answer. It's election. Not all who are descended from Abraham are, are Abraham, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is to Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So he brings up case studies. Abraham had two sons by two different women, uh, first by uh, Hagar, um, the slave woman, and he had a son, Ishmael, by Hagar, the slave woman, and I'm just using the language of Galatians that Paul uses there. And then there's the, uh, the child of the free woman, Sarah, um, who is a, is a child of power, a child of the promise, a supernaturally born child, Isaac. And he then, in Galatians and in other places, represents, he's biological son of Abraham, but also represents children of God who are born not in the natural way, but born by the power of God. And so what he's saying is biology isn't going to save you. Biology doesn't save the Jews. It is the sovereign working of God, the circumcision of the heart, being born by the Spirit, the language that Jesus uses with Nicodemus, being born again, born by the Spirit. That's what he says is the true, um, or as Ezekiel would say, the heart of stone being sovereignly removed and the heart of flesh being put in. A spirit put on uh, an individual, moving that person to follow his decrees and be careful to keep his laws. An inner transformation, that's what we're dealing with. And so not every one of the biological descendants of Abraham or, uh, frankly, of Isaac um, had that happen. Um, they're not all believers. They're not all genuine Jews. 
And this is a sad, tragic, recurring theme, and that is the continual rebellion of the Jews against God. It is not, an, it's not a new story. It is a, it is a long-standing issue. And I would commend to you, as I've done a number of times in these Roman studies, Ezekiel 20, in which God traces out that tragic history of their idolatries and their rebellion and their rejection of God and how God consistently wanted to kill them. But for his namesake, he didn't. It's not just with the golden calf. Remember where he said, now leave me alone and let me wipe them out and I'll make of you a great nation. He said that to Moses. According to Ezekiel 20, it's not the first time that God had that thought, if we could consider it in an anthropomorphic sort of way. It's like the Jews had learned paganism, the Jews had learned idolatry in Egypt, and they were idolaters. And as they came out, just because they came out under the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God didn't change them at all. The very point that Paul makes, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 10. I mean, look what happened to the Jews. They all went through the Red Sea. But most of them never made it in the promised land. Remember he says that? Their bodies were scattered through the desert. He says, don't be like them. Don't be idolaters like they were. You can read it all in 1 Corinthians 10. He's like, you know, you think you stand firm, take heed lest you fall. Look at the Jews. Look what happened to them. Just because they came out in the Exodus didn't mean they were genuine followers. And by the way, it's implied in the 10th plague with the uh, Passover. Remember how they had to sacrifice the Passover lamb and paint the blood? And if they didn't, they would die just like the Egyptians. If they went out in the street, they would die just like the Egyptians. And what is the point? They're just like the Egyptians. There's no difference except the sovereign grace of God and God's dealings with them. So this is the consistent. And then they, when they first had the first opportunity, they act like pagans at Mount Sinai. I mean, they heard the Ten Commandments from God in such an overpowering way that they begged that they not hear God ever speak to them again because they were afraid they would die. And so they asked Moses to go up into the presence of God and hear God's word and then come down and tell them. And God said that, you know, that's like the first time he ever said anything good about them. He said, I wish they always would fear, that, fear me the way they're fearing me now. And so he established that office of prophet that Moses was kind of the first primary prophet for the Jewish nation. And then God would raise up other prophets after who would stand in the presence of God, hear God's word, and then bring it to the people. But as Jesus said, they never listened. As Stephen said, they never listened. God would send them prophet after prophet and they just killed the prophets and stoned those sent to them. This is their regular pattern. It's a tragic story. So it's not a new thing here, this idea of, a, of an Israel within the Israel. It's a long-standing story. If you read the Old Testament, you know what I'm saying is true. This is exactly why the two exiles happened to Assyria and then the Babylonian exile. So at any rate, He's saying, look, they're not just because they're physically descendant doesn't mean they're really God's children or Abraham's children or any of that. But it's the children of the promise. But this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. He's there. Isaac is a child of the promise, a child of the word. Right. Um, and then uh, as he could consider arguments made against that saying, yeah, but they're two different women you know, the slave woman and the free woman. It's like, all right, well, let's go to the next generation. Isaac. And his wife, Rebecca, um, conceived, Rebecca conceived, and she was barren, but God, Isaac prayed for her, and then she conceived, and she uh, conceived twins. And she had two uh, boys in her womb, and they're fighting with each other. And um, um, she wanted to know what's going on, and so she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, two nations are in your womb, and they're, they're you know, be hostile. And, the, and that's where he quotes here, the older will serve the younger. Uh, and that is um, Esau 
will be subservient to Jacob. Uh, Esau will, I mean, Jacob will be preferred to Esau, despite the fact that primogeniture is the normal pattern for the Jewish nation. The firstborn, that's the privileged position, but not in this case. Esau was born ahead of Jacob, but um, the role was reversed. The older will serve the younger. Now, what Paul says about that is before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. So this is a key issue. All right. Just as justification is not by works of the law, we learn that at the end of, of Romans 3, we are not justified by obeying the law. So also election is not by works either. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. So election is choosing. The choosing happened before they were born. We learn from Ephesians that choosing actually happened before the foundation of the world. But at any rate, Paul's point here is not all that. He says it elsewhere in Ephesians, but not here. Just before they were born and had any track record. They weren't, they weren't like interviewing for a job. They weren't trying out for the team, you know, or for the, for the choir. They didn't do anything. They hadn't even been born yet. And so already the establishment of Jacob over Esau was made, not by works, but by him. And that's the key. It's not works, it's God. And so that's what, those are going to be the two that are pitted against each other uh, in terms of salvation. It's going to be salvation by works or salvation by God. And that's what's going through this whole thing. That's what's going to carry us right through um, verse 18, which I hope to finish uh, tonight. So we just get through it. Not, not by works, but by God. That's you know, him who calls. And he says calls. Call is, the, is you know, part of the uh, process of salvation. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. Just as he said earlier, uh, God uh, concerning uh, Abraham, uh, whose body was as good as dead and Sarah's womb was also dead. Uh, but um, God is the one who calls things that are not as though they were and gives life to the dead. So he calls like creation ex nihilo. He calls out of nothing. And his word is powerful. That's the God who calls. So not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. So that's a, we've already covered all that, but that's the basic uh, principle. That's the explanation for the problem. Why is it the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus? The answer, to sum it all up, is they're not elect. The elect do call on Jesus' name and trust in him, and the non-elect don't. He's going to get extremely clear about this, but that's what he's going to say. He'll just openly say, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did, the rest were hardened. He openly says that. That's where we're heading. So fundamentally, there's a group within the group. The elect do believe in Jesus, as Paul himself gives himself as an example. God has not rejected his people. I'm Jewish and I believe in Jesus. He's not rejected all of them, but he's got this remnant, this remnant chosen by grace. So that's what he's getting at. All right, so that's, that's all by way of review. Um, so then, as we mentioned last time, verse 14, he brings up the question of God's justice. This seems unjust. Well, well I, sorry, I skipped the second verse. He says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So that, I've said before, is probably the most offensive verse in this, along with, um, you know, verse probably verse 18 as well. They're similar. God has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. The idea of God hardening is offensive to people. The, the idea of God hating is offensive to people, um, but that's what the text says. So Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Again, not by works. 
So that's, that's, what, that's the whole package then. All right, so it seems unjust. It brings up the issue of justice. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. All right, absolutely not. All right. Now, I've, I could go into all kinds of, you know, God's credentials on justice. I could even do it from Romans as we've done before. God, God demonstrates his justice at the cross in order, in order that, that because of his forbearance and left, leaving the sins beforehand unpunished, Christ uh, had to vindicate God's justice in saving a sinner like David and saving a sinner even like Abraham. God justifies the wicked. And what, in what sense was God's law upheld in that they you know, are welcomed into heaven? It's through the cross of Christ and God vindicates his justice. So we could say that and we could do other, many other verses about how you know, God loves justice. Parenthetically, I've said before, our instincts toward justice come from God. All right? The reason we want to make sure that things are just is because we're created in the image of God. It's not something any squirrel is worried about. All right? It's not something, something any eagle is, is concerned about. It's something we are worried about or concerned about because we are created in the image of God. But he's going to say that. It's like, you know, you're a pot and you're coming back to the potter about this whole thing. I am justice. I am perfect justice. All right? For you to come back and ask me about my justice is a bit incongruous because what any instinct you had about justice has come from me. But, you know, that's what we're dealing with here. It seems unjust. One of you will say, is God unjust? Absolutely not. But here's his reason. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what is the significance of him answering, is God unjust, with the statement, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy? How does that further the argument here? Does he answer the question about uh, justice in verse 15? Let me ask a simple question. I know I ask like hard questions and people are like trying to follow me. All right. If you look at verse 15, do you see the word justice or injustice there? Not at all. And yet Paul thinks he's answering the question. Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Explain the logic. Explain the connection between verse 14 and 15. He's answering a charge of injustice by verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So when I've tried to explain this to internationals who it's kind of a new concept, talk about how at first we all think that we are like at zero. Like I don't deserve good or bad, maybe. Or maybe I deserve good. And so it's so mean for God to punish me and bring me down here when actually all of us start way down low and all we deserve is punishment. And so for God to show mercy, he's not giving us the punishments we deserve. And, you know, like if you owe a debt, if someone forgives that debt, that person still lost the money. Like they're not getting the money back because you didn't pay them. And so they still take that cost upon themselves, which is what Jesus did. He took that cost upon himself. So okay, the justice so- was served. But he showed us mercy, not giving us permission. Okay, so the word mercy implies, frankly, let's be honest, criminality here on the part of the people, right? Go ahead, Greg, you're going to say something. Yeah, I think he's, he's asserting that uh, uh, for him to, um, for anybody to be saved, or anybody to uh, receive uh, 
for goodness from God. And, uh, his, his, none of it, he's assuming none of us deserve there is none. Esau didn't deserve it, and Jacob didn't deserve it. Uh, um, um, so it wasn't because of that that they received it. One was dead differently with the other because God has complete freedom to deal with people in his sovereignty as he deals. And he, because he is the definition of goodness and justice, Okay. Very good. So the mercy implies criminality or sin on our part, which has already been thoroughly established in the book of Romans. And we're well into our Roman study here. There's no unrighteous, not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. Now that, keep that word worthless in mind when you talk about the clay that God made into a vessel of, of honor or a vessel of dishonor. A vessel of mercy, a vessel of wrath. We're all worthless clay given sin given descendancy from Adam, and given violation of God's law, we become worthless. That's what the word worthless means. Um, you know, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the group that we're talking about here, and that's the whole human race. Because he says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no pure righteous people anywhere we're all sinners all right so uh it's it's a matter of mercy um Andy, yeah sure so the head scratchers here is why not that he hated Esau, but that he loved jacob yeah i mean jacob's no great shakes yeah. i mean you know just you just look at him and i mean that's one of the things the bible does consistently if you have any any length of time spent on an individual at some point, you're going to have some reason to dislike them. All right? In the Bible, I mean. There are a couple of exceptions, but not many. And I think it's because the Bible just depicts the truth of the statement, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everybody messes up at some point. All right? There's some exceptions, but even they, like Daniel's probably the only exception I know where you just never see him do anything wrong or say anything wrong, etc. However, he does confess sin. All right? So, um, but going back to mercy, Titus 3, uh, 3 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. So that's probably the strongest mercy saved us verse in the, in the Bible, I would say, other than this one we're studying right now, Titus 3. But before the mercy comes, we're a seething pit of vipers. I mean, that's what the verse is saying. We, we were deceived, we hated, and hated each other, and we were nasty. Now, I want to say something, though. I don't know that we can connect mercy with the privilege that God could give to a holy angel. I, wouldn't, I don't think that. But I will say this, uh, you know how Gabriel said, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God? You get, do you get the feeling that Gabriel is a privileged angel, perhaps an archangel, that he has access to God that's unique? It's the first thing he said to Zechariah when Zechariah didn't believe that he was going to have a son, remember? Remember how he struck him dead, uh, dumb, right? He said, because you didn't believe me. And by the way, you don't seem to know who I am. I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent here to give you this message. And so because you didn't believe me, you're not going to be able to speak until it happens. And it's going to happen. All right, so that's Gabriel. 
But the, the thing, thing is, no angel would ever say it's unjust for Gabriel to have that level of access and I don't. It's not something God has to do with anybody. Even if there's no sin involved, God has the freedom to arrange his universe the way he wants to. And if he wants to have archangels that have closer access to him and other angels who are just in the vicinity, he can do that. And none of those angels would accuse him of wrongdoing, saying you gave the archangels more privileges than you gave us. So just because we're creatures, we need to take our assigned place. Does that make sense? Whatever place God assigns us, we just need to take it and not think it's unjust for God to give some people better privileges than others. I just think, however, that that falls apart a little bit when it comes to um, uh, the word mercy, because the word mercy seems to be tied to misery and sin and crime. And you don't see that any of that with angels. So at any rate, I'm just saying, we'll get to that other theme. I think it's true. God just has the freedom to arrange his universe the way he wants. He just can, he can do that. He can do what he wants. But that's the answer. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now, the language itself, what does it mean to you? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'm going to have compassion on whom I want to have compassion. It's, it's like I am, right? I am. It's I am. It's I am. It's really not open for debate. It's I am. He is God. And the problem is we don't seem to understand that. I mean, who's the case he's about to bring up? He's going to bring up an individual in the second part of this paragraph. Who is that individual? The scripture says to who? Pharaoh. What was Pharaoh's first statement about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Remember it said, thus says the Lord, let my people go. What did Pharaoh say? I don't know the Lord. And I'm not going to let the, the people go. I, who is the Lord? Problem is, that's kind of all of us. Let's be honest. We don't know him. This is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God. We don't really know him. We don't know who he is. This is part of our education, friends. Romans 9 is part of our education. He's like, I'm going to have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. You don't seem to know who I am. And if I want to have mercy, I'm going to have mercy. And if I don't, I won't. And so that's, that's the, the issue here, is the salvation to the elect Jews and to the Gentiles that we've been discussing here is an act of sovereign, godlike mercy and compassion. That's what it is. It's not a failure of justice. It's an exercise of freedom on God's part. Does that make sense? That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, go ahead. I can't help but think of the, of the title of the CSU's book, uh, God in the Bar. So true, so true. All right, so that's, that's the answer. Salvation is by sovereign mercy. Just using the word here, we could use grace as well. Very difficult to distinguish between grace and mercy. Um, they, they may be, in some cases, synonyms. Uh, in any case, though, it's, it's sovereign grace, sovereign mercy. And he has compassion. So, when you think about mercy and compassion, these are powerful attributes of God. This is, this is God moving out toward us in our misery. And, and what has caused our misery? In our, our case, we're not holy angels. We have sinned. We are a brood of vipers. We are evil people. And we're in misery because of it. And God has compassion on us about that. It's really quite remarkable. Not to mention where this whole thing is heading, which Jesus alone revealed most clearly in all 66 books of the Bible. We're talking about, you know, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We're talking about unquenchable fire. And I mean, that's utter misery where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus said, outer darkness. So he has mercy on us to deliver us from that. 
We don't get what we truly deserve. So justice in a simple way for us sinners and us rebels would be condemnation. That's justice. God is instead showing us mercy. And that is something that just can't be denied. He gives it or he doesn't. It can't be demanded. I said denied. I said it can't be demanded. We can't demand justice or mercy. We can't demand mercy. And if God shows mercy to one rebellious sinner and not another, he is not thereby unjust. And that's something we have a hard time with. Like, I get it if you save no one, God. But in that you are saving Jacob but not Esau, that seems unfair or unjust. And that's where the, the problem comes. But I brought up that, that issue where, he, where the owner of the, the field said to the, you know, the ones who had worked all day and got the same pay as the one that worked just for one hour. Remember, they all got a denarius and they thought that, that the owner was being unjust. He wasn't being unjust. He gave them what they had agreed. He says, you are envious because I'm generous. You're envious because I'm generous. I think that's part of the problem here, is God is being generous to some people. He's not just, he's just not being generous to everybody, equally generous. Or else, it would be universalism. And the Bible doesn't teach universalism. Let's keep going. Verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Uh, that's that's my translation, NIV 84. Is there any other translation for 16? Maybe ESV, somebody have a, another translation? It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Yeah, as I remember, it's the literalistic translation, I haven't looked at it, but the literalistic translation is not depend on the man who wants, desires, or the man who runs. I think the word is runs. So that's where it gets translated. What's your translation say? The second human desire. Human will or exertion. Exertion. So but that's tied to the, the running. So it's like trying really hard, you know, energetically going after this thing. What does verse 16 say about that? Verse 16 is a negation. It's a negative verse. What does it say? What doesn't depend on that? It. Okay, it doesn't. All right. What, what is the it? What doesn't depend on human desire, will, or human striving, effort? Well, what's the topic here? What are we talking about? Yeah, and ultimately we'd use the big word, salvation. So you could put the word salvation at the beginning of verse 16, couldn't you? I think it's, that's fair. This is not a twisting of the verse. Salvation Namely, calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, being saved by Jesus. Salvation does not depend on human desire or human effort, but on God who has mercy. Again, it's going to be, in this case, man versus God. In earlier, earlier it was uh, works versus God. But it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by Him, God, who calls, here, it's not by man who wills and, and runs, but by God who has mercy. So again, that's how the grammar goes. Pitting man against God. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, now you stripped my transmission, Pastor. So Yeah, you wrote that to me. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, yeah. So to... hold on. You, just, you, you, you would agree, because I got you on tape, right? Um, Uh-oh. Election is, election is uh, unconditional, right? And salvation is a different thing and conditional. No. Well, no, how do I? How did you get from me that I said it's conditional? Uh, I'll pull the tape. We'll, we'll talk. But, but it, the, the, those two terms 
are explicitly separated. You just smooshed them back together. You used election salvation simultaneously. I that doesn't make sense. All right. Well, there's just different different stages of salvation. If you look at the stages in Romans eight um, twenty twenty nine and thirty, those whom God foreknew, He predestined; those He predestined, He called; those He called, He justified; those He justified, He glorified. That whole series is salvation. Step by step by step is all part of salvation. Election isn't mentioned there, but it's mentioned in many other places. It's a necessary precondition. Yeah, but it's just part of the overall salvation package. So I wasn't mushing them together. I was just, it just doesn't specify in verse 16 what he's talking about, the it. It could, it could be election, doesn't depend. Here's where I'm going with this. So okay. Stephen talked about um, Jews, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Right. What's the context there? What's that act of will or willful resistance that he's talking about? You can't resist election, but you can control your response to the call of God, right? So what, talk a little bit about that. Well, what Stephen was talking about is the same thing Jesus was talking about. They, they shoot the messenger. That's what they did. They sh the messengers were the prophets. And the Holy Spirit would come on a prophet and move him out to go tell, talk to the people, right? It could be Isaiah, Jeremiah, it could be Amos. And what happened when those guys went out filled with the Spirit, God's words were burning in their mouth, and they would speak? What kind of reception would he get? Well, we know. It's got to do with that, that vineyard, remember, and the owner, the absentee owner, sends messengers to get his share of the crop, and they beat the first one, you know, beat the other one, kill the other. I mean, who are the messengers in the parable? They're the prophets. And the prophets, you know, came in the name of God. And so when Stephen says, you're just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet you didn't persecute? So he tells you what he means. He's and then Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, dot, dot, dot. So that's the resisting of the Holy Spirit. So it's an external call, but the call is coming from the Holy Spirit. And the call is coming through the Spirit, repent, turn, whatever and they didn't, I'm just, they didn't where, I'm, where i'm struggling with is the not the divine portion of this equation it's right. the human portion of this equation that that gets gets me in in some sense that comment then is irrelevant it doesn't matter whether they were resisting or not if god hadn't called they they got nothing to respond to in the first place no i understand um but i'm going to keep walking through this because i i felt like honestly last week we did like one and a half verses so I wanted to at least do like three or something or four tonight. I just wanted to feel like I was making progress. Um, but anyway, so I, I think it's fair to say the it here in verse 16 really is the, big, the whole big thing. It isn't just election because it's election to what? Election to salvation. So, you know, fundamentally this whole thing, human salvation, salvation from sin doesn't ultimately depend on human desire, man's desire, effort, but on God's mercy. I think that's the best way to understand verse 16. Again, keep in mind, we're all in this together. We didn't write Romans. We didn't write Romans 9.16. We're all reading it and saying, okay, we've got to figure out what this means. It does not depend on man's desire, effort, but on God's mercy. But I think it's fair to say, in the flow of the context here, we're talking about salvation. could be election, but it doesn't matter. Election unto what? Salvation. Anyway, that's where you're going to go. So I would say ultimately. Now that does not mean, friends, that humans, while being saved, don't show desire or effort. That's not true. But I look at it this way. We love because He first loved us. We choose because He first chose us. We do choose. 
We do desire. We do have effort. We're supposed to run a race with endurance. If we're going to do running, the running analogy, which I think is what the Greek says, we actually do run with a purpose. Paul says, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I've got to, you know, I run a race that's set before us. We're supposed to lay aside every hindrance and run the race with endurance. It's not that we don't run. It's that it's not because we ran really well that we get forgiven of sins. That makes sense. It's not because we ran really well that God accepts us into his inner counsel and shows us his glory. You can't earn it. That's what he's saying. It doesn't depend on that. It doesn't depend on man's desire or effort. The weird thing is, the thing that's so amazing, you know, it's like uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act. And I think people confuse the secondary effect of salvation of sovereign grace with the primary causal factor. That's where Arminianism, I think, goes wrong. Those things actually do happen. We actually do love Jesus. We are attracted to him. We delight in him. We choose him. We want to follow him. We call on him. We do all of these things. These all happen, but because God healed us, because he transformed us, that is evidence of the heart of stone being removed and the heart of flesh being put in. What he's saying here is not only election, but the whole salvation doesn't ultimately depend on that. And praise God for it. Remember the two things that come from this whole study are humility and security. That's what we get. You get humility and security. You get humbled by this, but you also get confidence that God isn't going to let you go. He's going to keep working. He who began that good work in you, he's going to keep doing it. That's what I get from verse 16. Before I move on to verse 17, any other thoughts about verse 16? Yeah, another passage that speaks me like what you quoted from Philippians 2 about God and uh, the word is uh, first uh, here on the says the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the fire of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live uh, the reason we love God is because God has done work to circumcise our heart Amen Amen. So I think we just look at verse 16, at least this, this much. It's not like God's up there saying to the human race, prove it, do something, get my attention. You're in trouble right now. You've broken my laws. And then a group of people suddenly desires and efforts, and then God picks them. That is what 16 is saying. That's not what happened here. It doesn't depend on that. It doesn't depend on human desire, or human effort. But when God moves out, as you said, circumcising the heart or you're born again or heart of stone removed, heart of flesh, what's going to happen? You're going to show desire and effort. As a matter of fact, if you don't show desire and effort, God hasn't done a work in you. You're still dead in your transgressions and sins. You're living like you all, you know, it's Ephesians 2. You, you're just doing what the world does. But once God works in you, you start showing desire and effort toward Jesus and toward God and toward his law and toward all of that. That's what being saved looks like. Let's keep going. Verse 17. For, I tell you what, Paul's logic here is like, all right, the next thing I want to say that's directly tied to that, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Somebody help me here, all right? What is the logical connection between verse 16 and verse 17? First of all, is there one? Is there any kind of logical connection between verse 16 and 17? Yes or no? Does Paul think there's a connection? Why do you know that Paul thinks there's a connection? By the way, there are no verse numbers back then, but uh, he'll go with our whole verse number thing here. All right, 
What does, well, how do you know Paul thinks there's a logical connection between verse 16 and verse 17? Word four. Word four is a logical connector. All right, now it's not always easy to see the logic. It's not always easy to see the link. But we have to try. That's what exegesis is all about. We're trying to understand the way Paul thinks. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Why do you say that, Paul? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, etc. Now, Pharaoh is brought in as an example of what? In what way, though? He's a, a, a paradigm example of someone that God, later in this chapter, hardens. That's, that's why Pharaoh's being brought in here. An example of, frankly, let's be honest, an Esau-type person. An Esau-type person, a Pharaoh-type person, that's who's brought in here at this moment. Not someone who's saved. He's done that earlier with Abraham. He did that earlier with David and all that. But this point, he doesn't bring in an Abraham and a David. He brings in a Pharaoh. And that's actually relevant because, again, what's the question in front of us in these three chapters? What are we dealing with in Romans 9, 10, and 11? There is a burning issue that's deeply concerning to Paul. And what is it? No, but the, what is the topic? The Jews. The Jews in that they're so wonderful and awesome? Why they're not believing in Jesus. Pharaoh is an example of why they're not believing in Jesus. You see, that's the law. He's bringing it in because he thinks Pharaoh's relevant to the Jews not believing in Jesus. You've got to keep your eye on the whole big picture here. What, what's the question we're trying to answer? Why is it the Jews are overwhelmingly rejecting? And we've already got the answer set up here with the whole, not everybody's Israel, and you know Abraham has different children, but they're, just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're one of God's children. And then you got Jacob and Esau, and then before the twins were born, and Jacob I love, Esau I hate, and whatever. And now then comes Pharaoh. So the four, at the beginning of verse 17 is like this is more of the same i'm saying the reason why we need to look at pharaoh as an example of unbelieving jews pharaoh is similar to unbelieving jews that's why he brings them in all right let's talk about it first of all how does he introduce the verse verses i raised you up for this very purpose that i might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth that's exodus 9 something whatever what is it exodus 9 16. All right, how is the verse introduced? Do you find that odd? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. What scripture says this to Pharaoh? Well, Exodus 9.16. What do you find interesting about that? Did Exodus 9.16 exist when this whole thing with Pharaoh was going on? No, it was written by Moses later when Moses had time, right? Out in the desert, when he has to wander with the unbelieving Jews for 40 years, and he decided to write some books, all right? One of the books was Exodus, and he went back and wrote about the whole story, right? Scripture didn't even exist. You think Paul didn't know that? <laughs> Paul knew it better than you do. Then why does he introduce the scriptural quote, this Exodus 9.16 quote, with the expression, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, This is the kind of question you should be answering, Pastor, not asking us. But what does it teach you at least about Paul's attitude towards Scripture? If you took the word Scripture out and you chose your first most likely word to put in its place, what would you put instead of the word Scripture? God. God. 
then what does that tell you about Paul's attitude towards Scripture? They're the same. If Scripture says it, then dot, 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 God says it. Scripture's like in the place of God here. The reverence that Paul has for the Word of God is off the charts. We don't play with these things. We tremble at it. This is, this is the Word of God here. We don't say, well, it's just his account. No, this is God saying this, even though it hadn't been written yet. So the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and what does Scripture say to Pharaoh? Well, let's take Scripture out just to make it simple. What does God say to Pharaoh here? I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, so let's look at it in its original place. I know we only have nine minutes, but let's go back. Look at Exodus 9. So Exodus 9... Um, 13 um, through, let's say, 18. Let's just cut it there. Somebody read Exodus 9, 13 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you have, would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. All right. Yeah. So he says, let me give you some advice. Bring in your animals. It's just interesting. It's like, you know, just you might want to do that. So what's going on? These are the 10 plagues. All right. Only by this time, there have been six of them. This is between the sixth and the seventh plague. Now, how many plagues in the end were there? Ten. So the tenth plague was a plague on the firstborn. How many did God intend to do before delivering the Jews? All ten. Why did he want all ten? Does God say here something to Pharaoh that says, I don't need ten plagues? I don't need 10 plagues. Does, is there something in the text that you just heard that basically says, I don't need 10 plagues? What does he say about his plagues? plagues. Huh? I will send all my plagues. I know, but before that, he says, I, by now, I could have what? Put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. With a plague that would what? Wipe you from the face of the earth. Wow. You don't seem to know who I am. I could have killed you by now. I could have killed you with my first plague. I could have killed you without a plague. You don't seem to understand. This is the very thing that Daniel said to Belshazzar. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. 
They didn't understand who he was. And they're getting an education. But it's not just them. God raised Pharaoh up so that the whole world would get the same education. He wanted to put himself on display. That's what's going on here. And that's why he didn't, as John Piper put it, make short work of Pharaoh. Could he have made short work of Pharaoh? Oh, easily. Well, what are we talking about? A single flesh and blood human being? And God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its nations are like grasshoppers? One person is nothing to him. Nothing. He says, look, by now I could have done this. I could have killed you. But instead I raised you up for this very purpose. Now raised up could be, I let you live. Just in context, that would be the simplest interpretation. I let you live and not die. But I think it's more than that. All right? What, if, it's, if it's at least that, but it's more than that. What do you think, what's the most natural way to read, I raised you up for this very purpose? Put him in that position. All right, we use that expression about our kids. You know, I raised two sons and three daughters, you know? Still kind of raising them. Actually, it's starting to switch around. Now they're raising me, all right? So, but that's, that's a whole different topic. But what does it mean to raise up kids? You know, I raised up sons and daughters. Raise them up. Cared for you, I nurtured you. Nurtured, trained them, fed you. Took care. Did God do that with Pharaoh? He did. Every meal every Pharaoh ever ate, God gave it to him. And not only that, privileges. He was born into royalty, all right? And he trained him and raised him up, but it's more than that. More than that. He raised him up to be a certain kind of person. All right, there are different kinds of kings. There are some pleasure-loving kings that just love a good meal and a, you know, an essential life. And then there are others that really love being in charge. They really love their power. Which of those two do you find this Pharaoh to be? The latter. He loved his power. Is that important for God's purposes? Imagine if he'd been the other type. He's like, okay. You want the slave? How many of them? All of them. I'm good with that. <laughs> He's not that kind. God doesn't want that kind. And so I believe Pharaoh had been hardened from childhood to be domineering, tyrannical, arbitrary, prideful, willful. All of the things needed to set himself up against a God who had done six plagues by now. He's a certain kind of person. And God wanted him to be a certain kind of person so that he might what? What's his reason? I raised you up for a purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Amazing. All right? Think about it. Rahab, the prostitute. Where do you think she is right now? She's in heaven. She's in Jesus' genealogy. She's in James chapter 2 as an example of faith. She's in the hall of faith in Hebrews. Why? What was the triggering moment that changed Rahab's life? I know, but why? What did she heard? She heard the stories. Especially the Red Sea crossing. Whoa. And she thought, we're in trouble. We're dead people. They're coming our way. And so she feared, like in the amazing grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And she made a deal with the spies, right? And she protected them and whatever. She cast her lot with the Jewish nation. And she made it into Jesus' genealogy. That's a big deal, all right? You know what's interesting about that, by the way? Did you know that she was in Jesus' genealogy? 
You know what's interesting? I didn't realize that until I wrote a devotional for twojourneys.org. That's nowhere taught in the Old Testament. It's not taught in the book of Ruth. Rahab's not mentioned in Ruth. I didn't realize that. David's genealogy, his microgenealogy, is mentioned in Ruth chapter 4, but Rahab isn't even mentioned. Who is she? She's Boaz's mother. But she's not mentioned there. You learn that in Matthew 1. It's amazing. because I, I know that because I was searching. Where's the verse? Where's the verse? Where is it? Where is it? Nowhere. You just have her story with the spies and all that sort of stuff. And then she pops up in the genealogy. It's pretty impressive. But that's not, none of that's the point. The point is what caused her to call on the name of the Lord in her own fashion was the reports of God's mighty power over Pharaoh. It was for salvation. That's God's intention here. It's not really to crush Pharaoh. He can do that. He could say, look, I don't need any more help here. You're an idolater. You're a tyrant. You're wicked. And um, oppressor, I'm going to just kill you. He didn't need anything more. But the fact is, he puts him on display so that people like us can be saved and understand our salvation. All right, so that's what he means. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, that's what he says. So go back to uh, Romans. That's not all that he says, though. We've got one more minute. We're going to use it. <laughs> Therefore, given Pharaoh's story, what do we learn? Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. We already said that. But now we got the other half. He hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, is that relevant to the question of why is it the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Christ? Does Paul think it's relevant? He thinks that's the reason. That's where he's going. He brings Pharaoh up as an example of God's sovereign activity and showing mercy to whom he wants to have mercy on and hardening whom he wants to harden. What does harden mean? Well, especially because Pharaoh hardened his own heart as well. We're going to get into all that, I guess, in the new year. This is, is this our last time? Okay, you're, you're, you're on tape, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm on tape. When was I on tape? Because I preached the whole book of Romans. All right, all right. You, you, you already know. <laughs> I've not changed my mind, Tom. I, I'm still, still, still believing the same things. But um, no, I, um, we're going to get into that. The, the, the whole mystery of Pharaoh hardening his heart, God hardening, uh, the, the phrase, as the Lord had said, all of that is, is still ahead of us. But at least we know that Paul is bringing this in as a reason, explanation of the Jewish unbelief. There is a connection in Paul's mind between why the Jews are rejecting and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We have to walk through that. All right. Jim, would you close us, brother, in prayer? Thanks. Well, thanks for your eternal word and uh, uh, the gift of understanding and the gift of election and salvation in Christ. And bless our weak and help us to be who you call us to be in Christ's name.